All right, so like I said, I have to admit to you that I love Christmas. Anybody else just love Christmas? The, I, I, I just like the time of Christmas and uh, you know, the lights and the shopping. Well, I don't like the shopping, but you know, I do like, I do like everything else that goes with it. And uh, for the most part, I get a chance to see some people that are not always the happiest people in the world, but at Christmas, sometimes they're actually a little bit you know, happier. There's always the Ebenezer Scrooge in the crowd, right? But still, there, there's something about um, Christmas that just, to me, is exciting, it's fun, and it really is, you know, a lot of it's the circumstances and the lights and everything that goes on. But as my wife reminds me, so you don't have to, she, she reminds me, it's not that way for everybody, you know. And uh, sometimes, you know, there's stress in the Christmas time. And uh, I avoid the stress, I admit that, you know. I don't, don't spend a lot of time worrying about you know shopping and doing things like that and you know and then everybody gets mad at me for not getting them anything but you know still I just don't worry about the stress of it of it all I just like the the Christmas time and to celebrate it but I wanted to do this as we uh, talked about Christmas this year I want to go to Luke's gospel um, and Luke's gospel is unusual uh, because of the fact that Luke was not Jewish uh, Luke is a Gentile, and he writes his version of the gospel as opposed to Matthew, Mark, and then John over here, uh, who you know are, are, are different in their approach. Even though John is called the one that's that's the most different, but Luke's is very, very different in his approach. And uh, I think it's uh, something that you and I, you know, is because of where we live in 2,000 years later and the commercialization of Christmas and everything else that goes on, we can learn a lot from Luke's approach and his story as far as Christmas is concerned. And the reason is this, I put this in your outline. I, there are a lot of times that, in fact, it'll pop up on the screen back here, won't it? Yep, there it is. Nope. There it is. Sometimes circumstances feel, say this with me, sometimes our circumstances feel what? Yeah, they do. Sometimes it's just not the happiest time in the world. The stress of it, the difficulties of, of the Christmas time, sometimes they feel bad, but also, keep moving, uh, they also give light, though, to the things that are filled with wonder. In other words, as far as the backdrop of Christmas is concerned, if, if everything was wonderful all the time, then we would look around and say, well, yeah, life is just always wonderful. But the fact that life is not always wonderful, and sometimes we don't feel good in the times that we think, well, we should feel good. Everybody's happy. Everybody's singing Christmas carols. Why don't I feel good? Sometimes that backdrop of not feeling good is, is the giving light or the, or the backdrop for the light to shine um, that really is about things that are very, very filled with wonder in our life. And then I put this at the bottom of that. Um, that's the backdrop of Christmas. Because in, in, in Israel's day, 2,000 years ago, um, everything wasn't wonderful. Uh, in fact, it was, it was the probably the most difficult or one of the most difficult times in the history of Israel. Um, they'd been a nation before. They'd been united by one king. Then they broke up and they're, they're broken into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom, maybe seven, uh, seven or 800 years before Jesus is conquered by the Assyrians and they absorb that, that uh, part of Israel into their empire. And then later the Babylonians, a couple hundred years later, come and they conquer the southern part of Israel. They absorb it into their empire. And, and ever since then, Israel and 
Judah, the part of Israel that we understand, has been part of, a, of another nation. They've been a vassal state or, or even a slave state of another nation. And there's a history of them going through this and the Greeks rule over them. And now at the time of Jesus, it's the Romans that rule over uh, Israel. So it's not a really you know, good time for them nationally because they look around and say, weren't we supposed to be a nation? Isn't our God, you know, the God that rules over the heavens and the earth? So as we look at ourselves and our lives, it, it doesn't really seem to reflect who God is. You ever feel that in your life? Sure. We're human beings. Um, God made us in his image. Um, if you are someone who is a believer in Jesus Christ, you might look at your life and you might say, but shouldn't my life reflect the goodness of God and shouldn't my life reflect all of the good things of life? Yes. Except for one thing, we also still live in a what kind of world? It's a broken world. And it's a secular world, of course it is. That's why Christmas becomes secularized and Christmas becomes commercialized because that's the way the world thinks. The world lives for right now, what's going on and what's best for me right now. We live because of who God is for something bigger than that. We live in this world. We have to go through the same things. But there's supposed to be something that we're looking for and looking forward to that is different in our lives than uh, maybe in those uh, who don't know him and those who really do need to know him in their life also. So I wanna take you to Luke's gospel. He starts it out in an unusual way. Um, he actually gives his uh, reason for writing this, talks about who he writes it to, and also he's gonna talk about how he's gonna write his version um, of the gospel here, the gospel according to Luke. This is what it says in verse number one. Many people have set out to write, listen to this, accounts of the events that have been fulfilled among us. So like I said, Luke is a Gentile. He is a Greek. Um, he, is, he is not a Jew. He was a companion of Paul, and uh, Paul talks about it in his letters afterwards. He talks about Luke and the other companions that went, went with him. And being a uh, physician, a doctor, which Paul talks about that, that he was, uh, he's more scientific in his approach. Uh, you will notice when you read Luke's gospel, maybe one of the reasons you would like it, I like it because of this, he doesn't really approach it from the standpoint of being Jewish because he's not Jewish. So he doesn't look for the same things that a Jewish audience would look uh, for in, in the writings. For instance, you know, go to the Gospel of Matthew, and Matthew talks a lot about uh, the birth of Jesus also. But, but Matthew's looking much more at the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. Luke does some of that, but really not a lot to it. Even in Luke's genealogy, he doesn't go back to Abraham, as Matthew does. Luke goes all the way back to Adam. Because as a secular person, a person who is not Jewish, you know, he looked at it as, as far as all of life is concerned, how does this fit into all of life? I, I like that. I don't know if you would like that, but I bet that you would because his perspective is different. This is fulfilled. This has happened. Jesus has come into the world. Uh, he has lived a life. He has been crucified. Um, he has been raised from the grave. And as Luke would think, this is important stuff. Everybody should know about this. But he also understands, as time goes on, that uh, the story could get twisted and turned and other people could interpret the story in a way that fit how they wanted the story to uh, turn out. And so Luke decides, you know, maybe a good idea if I write this down. This is what he says in verse two. He says, they used eyewitness reports, and this is what he's gonna do. 
He's gonna go to eyewitnesses uh, circulating among us from the early disciples. Having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, Luke says, I also have decided to write a careful account to you, most honorable Theophilus, so you can be certain of the truth of everything that you were taught. So some people think that uh, Theophilus was not a person. Uh, the name Theophilus, just to let you know, would mean um, God, you know, there's the Theo, right? That, you know, that, that God somehow proclaimed in us or in our name or who we are, a God lover. And so some people think, well, he's just writing to all those who are Christians who, who love God in this way. It, it would have been very common in their day to name their children in some way associated with the gods. So this is not necessarily an uncommon name. Um, and I think it's probably a real person, but, but at the same time, even in his name, there's this idea that if you're a God lover, you're gonna love what I'm gonna tell you about, right? He said, I'm gonna give you some details. In fact, his purpose is this. His purpose is to build up and encourage the faith of this man named Theophilus. And of course, anyone who would read this, his, his method is he's gonna examine the facts carefully and he's gonna lay out the facts from the eyewitnesses that he's talked to and uh, from those he has interviewed so that he can say, this is the way this story went. Did, was Luke an eyewitness to any of these accounts? We don't know that he was. There's no word that Luke gives us that, that he was, but obviously he talked to those who were. What's very obvious in this first couple of chapters is Luke must have spoken to and going over the story a lot with Mary herself, maybe even Elizabeth and Zachariah, because he's going into the details of what they experienced and what they went through, because he has decided this is really, really important. In fact, here's what I really like about Luke's account. He doesn't start where you might think. In his account, he actually starts not with the birth of Jesus, but Luke start with the, starts with the birth of someone else. He's the guy that eventually started the Baptist churches all over the world. His name was, anybody remember him? John, yes, he didn't do that, so I'm sorry, okay. He's John and he's later called John the Baptizer because he's out baptizing in the River Jordan, calling people to repentance, unusual, unusual guy. But he's foretold and, and Luke thinks it's important to actually look at his story because you're gonna find in the story that John's parents are actually related to Mary and Joseph also, and, and so there's, a, there's a, a connection that's there, just as there would be a connection between John and Jesus later on in life. But it was an important part of the story because John is a forerunner. In fact, I will, I will tell this part in the first chapter for you in just a minute, but when, when he talks, when the angel comes and talks about John and what he would be like, the angel actually gives details and talks about things that are last recorded in the Bible in the book of Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament. There's about a 400 year gap between Malachi and the life of Jesus. It's the time of silence when God does not seem to be speaking to Israel anymore through prophets and those who would come and help lead them. And it, and it made the time even more empty and deserted and to feel like, has God forgotten about us? Does God not, not care anymore for us? And yet he goes back and he, he reiterates what God will do that Malachi also talked about when he talks to 
especially Zechariah, about his son, uh, John. That's why John is often called, and rightly so, the last of the Old Testament type of prophets because he comes in that same line of Elijah and uh, the words that he would bring, words of encouragement, words of hope, but also tough words for Israel because of who God is and because of God's plans for Israel. So that's sort of the uh, background of it. And then it all, he immediately jumps into this part of the story. In verse number um, five, he begins the story um, in a place where you and I can absolutely relate in the life of Zechariah and the life of Elizabeth in their day. I'll see if you can relate to their story. Here's what it says. When Herod was king of Judea, I know you say, is, is he president of our, no, diff, different guy. Uh, so Herod was the king in his day. Herod, we will talk about uh, more about later, but Herod was a brilliant man. He was an incredible doer, um, very, very ambitious. And uh, Herod is known as far as uh, history is concerned really well because there are a lot of things written about Herod a lot of it, uh, things that are not very complimentary of Herod also, but very powerful man. So he says, in the days of Herod, when he's king of Judea, that's the area here in uh, Israel that the Romans uh, owned, he says, there was a Jewish priest named, say this, his name was what? Zechariah. And I hope you'll hold on to that name because Zechariah is going to play an important role in this story. Only Luke records this part of the story. He says he was a member of the priestly order. I'm going to teach you another word, another Hebrew word here. He was in the priestly order of Abijah. Say that with me. Yeah, I'm doing fine. How about you? So, uh, you know, so you can remember that name. Uh, Abijah is the fourth king of Israel. He comes after the split. And so he is, he is in a kind of a uh, royal family. It, uh, Zechariah is not a destitute or a per, poor person. Very important person. He's also one of the priestly clan. Um, and so he, he is a guy that if you talk to him, he would probably tell you, you know, where he's from, who, who, who was his lineage came through because he's a very important person uh, in Israel and he serves in this role in a priestly role also, which was a very important role. And it says also, and his wife Elizabeth, and Elizabeth was also from the, the priestly line of Aaron. Do you remember who Aaron was? Aaron's the brother of who? Yes, of Moses. So Aaron is incredibly important. If you were in the line of Aaron, you know, there would be a certain status to this. If you're backing on your lineage was one of the kings of Israel, you, you would have a certain status in who you are. So you would probably look at them, maybe you would think, hey man, that make me important too, you know, if, if I was somehow kin to Brad Pitt, or uh, you know, I don't know, you know, who you might think, you know, that would be important to let someone know that you you came from that line. Uh, yeah, that's who they were, um, and and that status would seem to carry with it um, a certain amount of excitement and a certain amount of well-being in life. But but, Luke's going to tell you a little bit more about their story. Here's what he says. He says um, Zachariah and Elizabeth were righteous in God's eyes. So they were upholding their role. They were doing the best that they could to obey the law, careful to obey all of the Lord's commands and regulations. And then it adds this in verse number seven. They had what? Say it with me. No children. And it goes on. Listen, they had no children because Elizabeth was unable to conceive. She couldn't have a child. And they were both 
very old. So this is, uh, I think in the original language, it actually says they, were, they had uh, kind of been overwhelmed or overcome with age. So that's another way to say, I like they're very old. You know, that's better for, uh, I don't know if you feel like you've been overcome with age. It just means like life and age has kind of beaten them down a little bit. Maybe they stooped a little more. They probably shuffled as they walked, you know. So they were, they were pretty old, but there was this status of Elizabeth that really, really, really bothered her. She could have no children. And it was really clear, you know, for some reason that it was Elizabeth who was the problem. In, in their day, this would have been socially a big, big, big issue that she could have no children. She would have been asked constantly, what's wrong? And it would even be looked upon as God had somehow forsaken her or deserted her or afflicted her in this way. Let me ask you this question, important question. Is there anything about your life, what you've gone through, what you've done, maybe experiences in your life, what you think your status is, your economics, maybe your education, anything in your life that you think, you feel as if, if people knew this, and maybe they do, that they would look at me and say, God himself has somehow kind of pushed you down, right? Kind of that age is caught up or so. Anything like that, you don't have to raise your hand or say anything, but just think about it. Sure. I think if we, if we dug deep into everyone's story, there would be something you'd say, yeah, that just... I always thought and just didn't and I don't understand why and maybe, you know, is God, you know, kind of punishing me or dealing with me or, especially in their day, you may not realize this, but in their day, it was even bigger than this, this, you know, you might feel that way if you couldn't have children today. It was even bigger in their day. I mean, you can go back historically and you can find out that in their day, a woman who could not bear children could be divorced for that one reason. He could put her away because she could not have children. And if you, if you know history, you know that historically throughout Europe, some of the great kings and some of the great leaders would put their wives away, not only for not having kids, but you know they would put them away for not having what gender? Male kids, right. You know some of the stories, right? Especially in England, didn't they, you know, we tried, you had a kid, it was a girl up, Behead that wife, give me another, you had a girl, behead that. And they knew, you know, when they had a child, if it wasn't a male child, and of course, we know now that all of that, whether it's a male or a female, has nothing to do with the woman. Who determines that? He should have been beheaded, right? That's, you know, it's not her fault. It was his fault. He is the one that determines whether or not, or from his, uh, his seed, whether or not it's gonna be a male or a female. So it's not fair. It's not correct. I would say the same thing a lot of times in our day. What we feel that maybe God has not watched after me. Maybe God has not cared. Not fair, not right. That's going to be true in their story. That God is going to prove to them he has not cursed them. He has not forgotten about them. In fact, she's going to have this wonderful, wonderful song that that she later writes out of the joy of her life. But right now, at this part of the story, is not really very joyful. It's just a long sense of disappointment and feeling that God's hand is not for her, but is against her. She's tried so hard, she's tried to do all of the right things. Zachariah's done the same thing. You have to applaud them for staying together and, and toughing it out 
together, but that's their situation. I love that because I still think that's the situation of people today. There are things in our lives, most of the time that we ignore or we don't want to talk about or we're really ticked off that the preacher actually brought it up on a Sunday morning sermon, you know, that it just made me feel worse and not better about life. But that's also a reflection of the nation of Israel. That's where they were. It looked like to them that God had forgotten about us as a nation. He doesn't care about us. All the other nations probably make fun of us. What is your legacy? What, what are you gonna build? What have, what have you done? Now, you just have gotten smaller and more insignificant and smaller and more insignificant. Couldn't defend yourself. You were conquered, you were overcome. I remember when I was in college, took a class because I, I love history, that's, that's me. And I especially love uh, this, this period, I always have. And I went and I took a class and the professor, um, I've told this story before, he looked like a Roman orator or a Greek god. His hair is pushed back. He had the nose, you know, he was just saying, he looked like a statue, a Greek statue. His chest was out and he, he had this incredible voice. He was booming in class. And he would talk about, this was on Mediterranean culture and the religions of the world, and, uh, and I just thought it would be really, really interesting. And what he talked about when he talked about all the wonderful religions and all the wonderful empires and all, and he did get to the Jews, the Hebrew empire and whatever, and he said, insignificant, nothing, nothing to talk about, nothing to be concerned about or ever. Why? Because they were never a great conquering empire that conquered other people. You kind of see the, how he saw it, but let's, let's face it. That's the way the world sees it, right? As conquering as the Greeks were, I mean, basically just going and taking lands and taking from other people, we view them pretty positively. All their contributions, you know, to philosophy and uh, to government and to language and the Romans, oh my goodness, the Roman roads, right? The great Romo, the Roman peace, um, that they forced on everybody, be peaceful, don't, don't go against Rome, right? Because otherwise we'll come in and interrupt your peace and kill you. And, you know, and, and so, you know, but we look at it as, but look at all the great accomplishments that they had. As long as you weren't one of those people who were being suppressed, oppressed, and taken advantage of, right? That's the way life is. So who's gonna rescue us from that? Who's gonna rescue Israel this, this people who are called by the name of God himself. Who, who's gonna do anything about this? I always wanted to go up to this professor and talk about, well, let's talk about how Christianity folds into that also, but he, he ignored uh, that part of it. So it but, but he was really interesting. I really liked the class, just to let you know. So here's, here's their situation, very old, very feeling like, man. And then it says in verse number eight, listen to this, one day, Zachariah was serving God in the temple for his order was on duty that week. So for them in the priestly orders, um, they would have one time a year that they would go to the, uh, and serve for a week down in Jerusalem at the temple and they would cast lots to see what your job was going to be. And this, this is one of those times where this is Zachariah's time, man. He must have felt really good about this because it says in verse nine, as the custom of the priest, he was chosen by lot to listen, here's what he gets to do. He gets to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. There's an altar there and he would burn incense and it describes it while the incense was burning, a great crowd stood outside praying. Yes, they're praying because as he burns the incense, 
The smoke that rises from the altar is viewed as the prayers of the people, the prayers of Israel, crying out for, God, have you forgotten about us? Do you remember your promises to us? God, have you remembered that, that, that you said one day you would rescue us? You, you, you would change everything. And it sure has been a long time since those promises, since those, those days that we hoped this, this was it, maybe this year, maybe this decade, maybe with my kids, those, those prayers are going up. And I can't imagine that Zachariah is in there and he's offering prayers on behalf of the people as the crowds were outside praying, the smoke is going up as a sign of God's uh, of, of, of the petitions lifted up to God, that he's not only praying for Israel, but don't you think, don't you think Zechariah is praying for who? Elizabeth and Zechariah also. Because it's not just Israel, he feels it personally. I mean, deeply he feels it. He feels it for his wife. He feels it for all this time that they have felt like we have tried and given our best and done everything we can and nothing to show from it, as far as you know, what would lift their feelings up, their status up, it still feels as if, feels as if God has forgotten about them. Now this is one of those times um, that, that he's kinda on a high note, so maybe on this high note, getting chosen by Lot and again to go in there, he feels like this, this might be it. In fact, I put in here, this might be the biggest thing ever to happen. Zachariah and Elizabeth. So maybe he thought, maybe things are looking up. Maybe this is just the beginning of something better. Are you like that? I am. This is it. This, this could be it. Think about the times that you remember. I was thinking about um, when I was in junior high. And probably the, the one thing I remember more than anything else about being in junior high was in the ninth grade. I know that you say that's high school, but in, in, in my school, we didn't know that. So the seventh, eighth, and ninth grade was all in a junior high building. That happens a lot of times. And in the ninth grade was probably my best year in junior high. You remember your best years? And you say, why was it your best year? So I'll tell you, I, this is how, how little it takes, you know, for me to have my best. So we're in assembly. We're in a room like this. We're all gathered around the stage in the junior high. It was the newest school uh, around. And they had brought in a magician to school assembly. I mean, I don't think you could get away with that now. Maybe you could, you know, but for some reason, they brought a magician in and he's gonna do some tricks with cards and things like that. And I'm sure he spoke to us about some very meaningful things, like you should study, obey your team. I'm sure he did that, you know, but I remember he's just doing magic. I can remember what I was wearing. You know, I've told you before, I was redheaded, freckle face. I had one of those wool coats or shirts made out of wool that you wore over and back in those days like a coat over your shirt otherwise. So I was pretty slick, I thought, you know. It was red and a little bit of yellow in the plaid. It was a plaid and I, I, was, I was sitting there and all of a sudden he says, I need a volunteer. So out of all the, the students there in the junior high, you know, he goes, how about this kid right here? I don't know if it was the red hair or if it was the red and yellow jacket, but I got picked to come up on stage with the magician. And you know me. So, you know, so you can go tell people. I knew him, you know, when he was in the ninth grade and got picked to go, you know, up on stage and all that. Yeah, I'm just, I'm telling you, it was a big deal. To me, it was a big deal. I kind of reached the height of my life at this point. 
I go up there and he did a card trick. You know, you got one of those, you know, where you pick the card, you look at it, what is it? You put it back in the deck and then he comes out and he, you know, he picks the card and, and uh, you know, and I tried because I was, you know, a little bit of a smart aleck at times. So I tried to mess with him a little bit, but he was way smarter than I was. And afterwards he did it. And afterwards everybody told me it was all a setup one. You knew him or the age I I really, I was stunned too. He actually knew what card I picked out of the deck. I don't know the trick, but I'm sure it was, you know, something cleverly devised that he, that he used many times before. But it was the highlight of my life. Remember any times like that? Sure you do. There are times when all of a sudden you think, this is it. Life is looking up. It's not as bad, you know, as it used to be as a redhead with freckles. You know, it's, just, it's looking up. It's, it's, it's going to be a good life. And, and sometimes, you know, those moments happen and you get some encouragement out of it. And then you move back on to the normal life. Yeah, that's right. It just kind of goes back to what it was. But I still remember that day. I think that's Zachariah at this time. I think he feels like, man, this might be it. This might be the change that I was looking for. So I told you I was gonna talk through this part of it because um, I can't read all of it or we'll be here all day. But Zachariah's in the temple and all of a sudden it says, to the right of the altar, an angel appears. He doesn't name himself right away, but we know later because when, uh, when he is in a conversation, he says, I am Gabriel. So he's, he's making it clear that I really am a big deal, this angel is. So he's the, the one who has come to announce and he tells him, God has heard your prayers. I love this. It's the same message when God sends Jesus Christ in the world that he has sent to us. It's the message that Luke has heard. God sees you, he does. He sees your situation. He knows what you're going through, absolutely. He cares about it. He has not forsaken you. If, if he would forsake you, he would never offer the life of his son in order to get your attention and to rescue you and to bring you back to himself. That, that's the message of Christmas, that in the lowest time, the darkest time, in the time that we think, no, God has somehow forgotten, God proves he has not forgotten and that God's plans will, will happen as he chooses in his own timing, not be our timing, but in his own timing, God does what he has plan to do what he has decided to do to prove to us that he has not forgotten about us. He sees us. And the angel tells him, Gabriel tells him, he hears your prayers. He sees your situation. He knows what you're going through. And he tells him, even though she's old, Elizabeth will have a child, will have actually a son. And tells him, you remember, you're to name him what? We talked about it again, all right? John, right? You're to name him John. Very common name for them, but a name that would be very important, and he describes what he will be like. He will be unusual, he'll be different, but the Spirit of God will be upon him, and we find out that, that the Spirit of God was upon him, as he says, even before he is born, and the Holy Spirit will lead him and guide him. John leaves this unusual life, and he talks about, like I said, some of the same things that Malachi talked about, some of the same words and the same spirit of Elijah. He will work and he will live and he will do things because he will be special. He will be different than all other kids, and he was different. Lived in the wilderness. <laughs> he, he, he dressed in animal skins. He ate honey and wild locusts, we're, we're told. 
And he, he was just a different kind of guy there for a, a special reason. And they were absolutely, or Zachariah was absolutely thrilled. Now, Zachariah says, I don't understand. You might do. How can this be, right? Maybe you've done this before. Maybe even the message that we talk about with the gospel, the message that Luke wants to proclaim to you, you would say, how can this be, though? I, I don't understand. How could this happen? And, and as a sign for Zechariah, Gabriel says, you're not going to be able to speak. Um, I, you know, some debate, is this a punishment? I just don't think it's a punishment, honestly. I think it's just one of those things that he has decided, I want to make this very clear. And until the time, you're not going to be able to speak. And Zechariah comes out and they're saying, it's taken a long time. This is what they worried about with priests anyway. He might have died in there. You might have a heart attack. Who's going to go in and get him because you can't do that because it was against the rules. So how are you going to get him out of there? And eventually he comes out. He can't speak. He tries to write things down, tries to communicate. And here's the one thing it says that the people knew. Something weird happened in there, right? <laughs> I mean, something that changed Zachariah, something that made him very different in how he sees things because God fills him with a promise. I think that's still true for us. When all of a sudden you realize what God has done for you, how much he cares for you, that he sent his son Jesus Christ into the world to reach you, to reach me, because he has a plan for our lives. And as we go through life, ups and downs, disappointments, things that we like, you know, he's, he's still with us. He does not desert us. And that he is preparing us and taking us through things because he has a place for us and he's going to, He's gonna take us home to be with him, that we, we belong. We have a family now. We have a whole new life because of Jesus Christ. Is that weird to people who, who don't know that or understand? Of course it is. Why wouldn't it be weird, you know? Um, I don't know if you're one of those people and you remember, you know, before you were a believer, people who were, were believers, and you might have looked at them and think, they're really weird. I remember that. Really strange people. And then I became one. Man, you know, that'll mess you up, right? <laughs> but God has plans. Of course he does. And those plans are always to remind you he's not forgotten about you. He, he's not given up on you. Even when you feel like, yeah, but if you only knew, I, I understand. Listen, if you only knew with me too, right? But God still loves us and cares for us. And God knows what we do and what we go through. And even then, God has plans to rescue us and to, uh, and to bring us back. So um, if you jump down in the same chapter down to verse number 23, um, it, it gets so good for Zachariah, and especially as it should for Elizabeth, knowing her situation. It says in verse 23, when Zachariah's week of service in the temple was over, he returned home. Soon afterward, his wife, Elizabeth, became, say it with me, she became what? You can't say that in church. Okay, yes, you can. She, she, became, she became pregnant in her old age. I mean, this, this is so stunning to her. In fact, look at her, look at how she reacts. She went into seclusion for five months. It has so overwhelmed her. She's still trying to figure it out. Could this be, I think she sat thinking, is this really true? Is this really you know, real that, that I'm gonna have a child. And, the, and then she proclaims this. She says, how kind the Lord is. One of my favorite parts of, in everything in the Bible, how kind the Lord is. That means 
how gracious, how merciful, how loving he has been toward me. He has taken away, say this with me, he has taken away my what? My disgrace of having no children. Wow. Now, I know that you may think, well, there's this one thing, you know, and God will never do. So there is a time if we give our hearts to him and we decide, you know, I, there is a time when everything that we would look at our lives and say, this is a sign of, of God does not have grace upon us, that he does not care for us or have mercy upon us. There's a time all of that always will be taken away. will be taken away. That's because God can do what you and I can't do for one another. And there are things that only God could do for you, just like he did this for Elizabeth. Even Luke, as a doctor, <laughs> would not say he could fix that. But God could. And he has removed, not only given her a child, he has removed this from her. Is this about her feelings? Of course it's about her feelings. I mean, she, something has lifted all of her that was a burden and may have helped her get older faster, right? Because it was just a weight upon her and God has lifted this off of her. Are you, are you here today and thinking, boy, Lord, I have something I would love for you to lift up. Anybody? See, he will. Now, I'm not telling you when or exactly what you'll go through, but that's the promise through Jesus himself that he will lift those things off of us. In fact, the Bible actually says that Jesus takes those things off of us and takes them to the cross himself. This is Elizabeth's reaction. And then if you uh, look in verse number uh, 26, um, this, this joy that she is feeling, this excitement that she is feeling is actually, inc it's incredible, it's gonna be connected to something even bigger, something that affects the nation of Israel and affects us who are Gentiles outside of the nation of Israel. So look in uh, number, uh, verse number 26, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel to Nazareth, to a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. So she's a young teenager. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. So he has some important sense of his lineage, but there's nothing in here about Mary having any kind of lineage. She's, she's probably 15 years old, something like that. She's engaged to be married uh, to, to, uh, to this man named Joseph, and it says in verse 28, Gabriel appeared to her and said, greetings, don't you love this? Greetings what? Favored woman. Is that the opposite of how Elizabeth felt? It, it is. Is there any 15-year-old that feels like favored woman? Probably not. <laughs> but that's how, that's how she is greeted. I, I love the discussions. I think they're worthwhile. Uh, I was just listening to a, uh, to a preacher and a scholar that I greatly admire, and he goes through it all too. Is there something special about Mary's life? And the answer is absolutely yes. What was it? We don't know. <laughs> we don't know. But what we do know, the specialist is, God decided to take her, to pick her. I know that humanly, we, we struggle with things like this and we come up with all kinds of things about Mary, you know, what, what she was like, and there are even people who believe that she is co-redeemer with Jesus. None of that is in any text anywhere as far as what we get from a revelation from God in the Bible. That's just, people just can't figure it out. Why in the world would God pick some poor, 
teenager who happened to be engaged to somebody from the line of David, there's nothing about Mary that, that makes her special. And yet, she's the most special because God picks her. Doesn't that make you feel better about your life? I think it should. That God would just decide, I want to use you. Not because of anything you've won, any awards, any accomplishments. or He just decides, and, and that's what changes everything, that the God of the universe would decide. And he picks Mary, favored woman. He says, um, the Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed, it, sure. Mary tried to think of what the angel could mean. What in the world could, could that mean? Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her. You have, been found, you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He, this child, he will be very great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom, he says, the angel says, his kingdom will never end. See, we're, we're part of that. 2,000 years later, as uh, the kingdom of God continues and continues to grow, we're part of that kingdom. We're part of this fulfillment. Does, does Mary understand it? No, but she's given this promise. She's given this connection to who she is and now who we are that was a gift. It's God's grace upon Mary, just like the son that she bore has become a part of God's grace upon our lives. We're connected, sure we're connected, all because of our faith and our trust and the promise and the plans of God. For 2,000 years after Jesus, believers would do several things that are very consistent. Number one, they would be baptized for their faith. It's a symbol. The baptism, baptism does not save a person. It is an outward symbol. John is the one who kind of really made this more popular because he was out baptizing, and even he baptized Jesus himself, not because Jesus needed to repent of his sins, he baptized Jesus to connect us with Jesus, and Jesus willingly did this. And then Jesus himself, after he is resurrected, then baptisms really start taking off as people believe. The other thing they would do is they would gather together as we're going to. And they would celebrate what the Lord himself has done, the sacrifice that was made for them, the life, the righteous life, the death, of Jesus Christ on the cross, taking our sins on the cross, his brokenness in exchange to give us his righteousness so that I don't bear my sin, so they are lifted off of me, so that the grace of God, the mercy of God, his great compassion is what floods and fills me because of what Jesus Christ has done for me. It's not anything that I have done, not anything that I have accomplished, not anything that that I've gone out and said, you know, I deserve this, or I've, I've won this award or this privilege. It is God's grace and his compassion upon us because we were made by him and he wants to rescue us with the life of his son. So Jesus gathered with his disciples even before his death and resurrection because he knew they would question it, they'd struggle with it. 
when he leaves and he wanted them to understand what he was going to do. He chose to do this. He chooses to give his life in this way. So he takes the bread of Passover and he breaks the bread of Passover and he hands it to them. He says, this is my body, which is broken for you. And at the end of the Passover meal, it is followed by traditionally a cup that is passed. And in this cup, he says, this wine now represents my blood that is poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. It's for a new life, a new relationship, a new relationship not only with God, but a new relationship with people, with one another, believers, and even with those who are outside of the fellowship Knowing that Christ died for them also, we proclaim the gospel, that message to them. His blood cleanses us from all our sins. And dear Heavenly Father, thank you for what you did for us. Not because we deserved it or we earned it in any way, but because of your great love and your compassion, your plans, your purpose in this world. And Father, as we look at it from where we stand, we are so grateful that you did it the way you did because it shows how we are welcomed into the kingdom, even in our struggles, in our difficulties. And as we go through our feelings of not being important and somehow things aren't going our way, just like people 2,000 years ago did, we're reminded that's not the final story. There's more to be written because of your great love and your compassion. If you're hearing maybe your story to this point has just been dominated by a sense of, I'm not gonna make it. There are too many things that just haven't gone well. And, and you're looking for some light in your life that will make a difference. I think the wonderful part of this message is you're not really gonna find it in Christmas lights. Not gonna find it at the mall, but it's gonna be found in the life of this little boy who's born to Mary, who is the savior of the world, who came for this purpose, to be God's light to us, a light toward a different future than we thought we had before. You can give your heart and your life to Jesus Christ, that's why he came. Trust him and let him take you to a different place. You say, Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sins. I know that I won't ever stop struggling, but thank you that, that your grace and the love of your father has come into my life to remind me that I'm not forgotten about. I've not been forsaken. Come live inside of me. Give me your spirit, a new life. Take me home one day to be with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.